When All They Heard Was Love by Katie McCabe Doctors gave Leah Church, who was born with a huge misshapen head filled with fluid, little chance of survival. But Sandy and Tim Church refused to give up on their little girl. Sandy Church was desperate for a glimpse of her newborn daughter. But when her wheelchair was rolled past the high windows of the intensive care nursery, every shade was drawn. How sick is she, Tim? Sandy asked her husband. Up from her memory rose the sound of the doctor's whispered, Oh no, when he saw the baby's enlarged head on ultrasound. Seconds after Leah's birth, the nurse had whisked the baby away, and Sandy had been too groggy with painkillers to demand an explanation. For 24 hours after her emergency caesarean, she was delirious with fever from a massive pelvic infection. Where is Leah? she wondered frantically. Now, as she and her husband approached the nursery entrance, Sandy shivered. Her head is just a little bit big, isn't it, Tim? she asked, fighting panic. Her tall, fair husband was silent as they moved past a row of incubators and came slowly to a standstill. There, in the incubator before her, lay a tiny baby girl smothered in a maze of tubes. Her head was so enlarged that her ears were pushed down onto her neck. No, no, Sandy whispered. She was ashamed to speak aloud the thought that rushed into her mind. She can't be mine. Tim, white-faced and mute, took her hand. What on earth is wrong with her, Sandy wailed. Hydrocephalus. One of the attending doctors spoke the word to Tim and Sandy that afternoon. We don't know exactly why, but in some babies the brain's normal drainage system shuts down before birth. Fluid accumulates in the head and compresses the brain tissue. Your baby has the worst case I've ever seen. The doctor told them the baby could die. Sandy fought back tears. But if she should live, Tim asked. From what we can tell, she would have very little chance for anything beyond a vegetative existence. The CAT scan's Dr Robert Wood, the neurosurgeon received the next morning, made him wonder whether very little chance had been an overstatement. The film showed a well of blackness inside Leah's misshapen head. Where the thinking part of her brain should have been, there was almost nothing but fluid. For years, doctors had known that hydrocephalus could be arrested by placing a shunt or one-way valve in a baby's brain. In Leah's case, the shunt would enable the excess fluid to drain down a tube into a cavity around the stomach, where it could be reabsorbed into the body. The shunt operation may itself be lethal when performed on a baby this sick, Dr Wood told the medical team that gathered to discuss the case. Do we take that risk? We may put the family through the trauma of high-risk surgery and still end up with a person who will never do anything but breathe. He paused. With so little brain substance, we also have to consider whether there would be anything to support the skull once the fluid begins to drain. Over the next few days, the team of three paediatricians and two neurosurgeons pondered Leah's case. Down the hall from the neurosurgical suite where doctors agonised, Leah Marie Church was fighting with all of her might. Now, three days after her birth, on September 1, 1985, all of her 47-centimetre body wriggled in her incubator. Tim had left before dawn for the ranch 130 kilometres outside Billings, where he worked as a farmhand, 
Missing another day of work in harvest season could cost him his job. Although alone and more frightened than ever, Sandy badly wanted to visit Leah. She asked the nurses to wheel her to the nursery. When she saw Leah's huge head turned sideways, she felt again the horror of the day before. But something else tugged at her, a feeling that this baby belonged to her. Tentatively, she reached into the incubator, then pulled away. I'm afraid I'll hurt her, she confided to Nurse Paul Franco. Don't be afraid. Leah's what we call a snuggler, he said. Taking care not to dislodge the electrode wires, Sandy gingerly patted the rounded pink tummy. Leah curled her body towards Sandy, as if hungry for her touch. Franco laughed. See what I mean? Mesmerised, Sandy stroked Leah's clenched fist. Lightning fast, Leah grabbed her finger. You know your mummy, don't you, sweetheart? Sandy whispered. She looked at Leah's wide-set eyes, her tiny nose and perfect bow mouth. For the first time, Sandy realised how exquisitely beautiful Leah was. It's like she's asking me to fight for her, Sandy said. But the doctors say there's nothing to fight for. Nothing to fight for? Franco seemed incredulous. Let me tell you about this little girl of yours. Late last night, I was changing Leah, holding the incubator door open with my elbow. It slipped and slammed shut. Leah jumped. She startled Sandy, a baby who's supposed to be deaf. Franco opened the incubator's porthole and stroked Leah's arm. She responded to his touch. There is someone home in there, he insisted. Any hope for Leah disappeared when Sandy and Tim talked with Dr Wood about the dangers of shunting. There is a significant chance that your daughter will die of cerebral hemorrhage on the operating table, Dr Wood said, or of brain collapse or infection after the surgery. Sandy reached for Tim's hand. If she survives, there is no evidence she will ever hear or see or think. Your baby really has almost no brain. He held the black sheet of CAT scan film up to the light. Technically, your daughter has hydrocephalus, but she is very close to anencephalic. That means without a brain. Sandy and Tim were silent. Leah may die with or without surgery, Dr Wood continued. And if she did survive, he added, she could still end up in a persistent vegetative state. From deep within her, a resolve took hold of Sandy to fight for her daughter. I refuse to believe that there's no future for my daughter, she said. I want the shunt operation done. She meant every word. But later, when she was alone with Tim, things turned greyer. What if Paul Franco's wrong, Sandy agonised. From the day she'd met her quiet, unwavering husband, he always knew the right thing to do, even when nobody else did. As long as Leah's alive, Tim answered, she deserves every chance we can give her. On the morning of September 11, Sandy and Tim patted their daughter outside the operating room. After Leah was wheeled in, Sandy walked to the hospital chapel, sank to her knees and prayed. Please God, don't let her die. Sandy and Tim had met in Montana on an icy morning in February 1984. Sandy was 19, beautiful and bubbling with energy. He was 35, quiet and shy, a plain-spoken ranch hand working towards buying a herd of his own. This big, strapping man had the kindest eyes Sandy had ever seen, 
and the gentlest manner and the strongest voice. Although they'd just met, she knew this was the person with whom she wanted to spend the rest of her life. Five weeks later, Sandy and Tim exchanged marriage vows, then settled into small-town life. To both of them, a house full of children seemed the most natural thing in the world. You may have to wait a little longer, Mrs Church, the doctor advised her, when she and Tim went for tests the following winter to see why she hadn't become pregnant. I suspect you have a tubal blockage, but that needs to be confirmed by special x-rays. The tests would have to wait. When, just a month later, Sandy began feeling nauseated and tired, her doctor ran one more test and answered, laughing, The impossible has happened, Mrs Church. You are pregnant. If ever a child was meant to come into the world, she and Tim told each other, it was this one who'd proved the expert wrong. The infant who emerged from surgery at little after 11am on September 11 was a tiny mass of bandages and oxygen tubes. But she was alive. That alone was a miracle. When can we hold her, Sandy demanded. The minute we get her off oxygen, Paul Franco promised, and the doctors give the okay, you can hold her. Later that week, the nurses placed Leah in Sandy's arms for the first time. Transfixed, she sat looking into Leah's wide-spaced eyes, light blue like Tim's, that peeked out at her from between bandages. Sandy, there's a problem with the shunt, she heard Tim saying. Then Dr Wood explained that the medium pressure valve he'd installed wasn't doing the job. Leah's head was still growing so fast, her incision threatened to break open. Sandy was even more devastated than she'd been at the outset. Now there's another battle for her to fight, she told Tim. Leah was producing cerebrospinal fluid at the normal rate, but without the brain surface that normally absorbs the fluid, the job of removal fell entirely on the shunt, and therein lay the new problem. Manual pumping, by pressing the thumb directly into the spot where the shunt was implanted, seemed to be the only way the nurses could stabilise Leah's head growth and keep her alive. Two weeks later, Dr Wood returned Leah to the operating room and replaced the original shunt valve with a low-pressure one. The fluid began flushing more rapidly, but her head continued to grow more than a centimetre a day. The neurosurgeons were forced to resort to a head tap, a delicate and dangerous procedure. Dr Wood inserted a needle into Leah's skull and gently sucked out excess cranial fluid into a syringe. It worked, at least temporarily. But how many more of the taps could Leah survive? With each passing day, Sandy and Tim felt themselves moving closer to the moment they'd been dreading. Gradually, the choice took shape. Where did they want Leah to be when the time came for her to die? If they took Leah to the dingy downtown motel where they were living, they'd have to pump her shunt by hand around the clock and walk her to the hospital several times a week to have her head drained. And in the end, would their baby just die anyway? Something else had happened since Leah's birth. Tim had lost his job. His employer needed field hands he could count on seven days a week. There's no choice, Sandy. We're going to have to sell the cows, Tim said quietly. Sandy looked away, thinking how proud her husband had been the day he'd first shown her his hard-earned start on a herd. She knew that it might be months before Tim could find another job. They'd have to sell everything else. Their furniture, their clothes, their wedding rings. Also, they could be with Leah. 
and take government assistance. Tim and Sandy had no income, no insurance, no medical expertise, no home, no future. If it hadn't been for love, they would have had nothing at all. Sandy and Tim set out from the hospital on an October evening. I just can't stop worrying that we'll wake up one morning and find Leah dead, Sandy agonised. I love her too much to watch her die. Tim unlocked the motel room door and switched on the lamp. He took Sandy's hand in his. There is no decision here, he told her softly. Leah is our responsibility, no one else's. We are the only ones she has and we have to love her until she dies. Sandy began to tremble. That's just it, Tim, that's what I can't face. Every minute I get more attached to her. She could not go on. The prospect of having Leah die in her arms was too terrible to contemplate. But so was the idea of abandoning her. Tim didn't stop. She deserves to be held and cuddled and kissed and loved every minute until the time comes for her to die. She doesn't deserve to be left with strangers. Sandy wanted to run, but she had nowhere to go. Desperate, she turned on her husband. When she heard her voice, shrill and frantic, she barely recognised it as her own. Leave, Tim, please. Just leave and don't come back, she shouted, not even knowing where the words came from. Ashen, he buttoned his coat and in an instant was out of the door. Sandy ran out calling for him, but the hallway was empty. The nurses at the intensive care nursery looked up startled when Tim walked in at ten o'clock, alone. I've come to visit Leah, he said. He slid a rocking chair next to Leah's crib, leaned over and picked her up. Leah nuzzled her swollen, sutured head into his chest. What would he do, he wondered, if Leah died in his arms? Daddy's here, Leah, he whispered as he began to cry. You're not alone. Slowly, Leah's eyes closed. Sleep tight, Leah. You'll be going home soon, he told her. And then he left. We have to talk, Tim told Sandy. I've been with Leah. They sat next to each other on the bed. If you want to leave, then leave, he said. But I'm staying with Leah. Sandy was quiet. Her fear had threatened to swallow up everything she loved. Now it seemed so clear. The three of them belonged together. We're both staying with Leah, she said. They would bring Leah home and love her as much as they could. Once Sandy and Tim had Leah to themselves, they could not kiss and cuddle her enough. You're home with Mummy and Daddy, they told her the first night, when at last they tucked her into the desk drawer that was her crib. When she cried in pain from the pressure inside her head, they held her. When she relaxed and wriggled and cooed, they held her. When she slept, they held her. Don't you two ever get tired? marvelled social worker June Collins, a handicapped child specialist who had been assigned to monitor Leah's care. No, we really don't feel tired, Sandy told her. Not yet, anyway. Soon we won't have her with us anymore, Tim explained. Hundreds of times every day, around the clock, Sandy and Tim had to pump her shunt valve by hand. In and out, in and out, they pressed, Sandy taking days, Tim nights. They were mindful of the nurse's warning. One missed cycle could mean the difference between life and death. Four times each day, they measured Leah's head, which kept growing just as Dr Wood had warned. 
Every other day they carried her back to the hospital to have her tapped with a needle and syringe. It was hard to watch the baby writhe and scream as the surgeons pressed the long needle into the top of her cranium and drew out the fluid, and just as hard to ignore the stares and whispers of strangers. I never stopped being afraid, Sandy confided to June Collins as November wore on. Every morning I wake up wondering whether this will be the day we lose her. There isn't anyone who could do what you're doing and not feel overwhelmed, June said. The most you can do is get through one day at a time. Vaguely, Sandy and Tim knew that there was life beyond their motel room, hospitals, doctors and needles. Somewhere there was work for Tim and a chance to begin rebuilding. But while Leah lived, there was only today. Somehow the little girl continued to beat death. Each time the doctors tapped her head and disposed of the fluid, Sandy and Tim waited for the worst to happen. Cerebrospinal fluid, with its vital nutrients, was meant to be reabsorbed into the body. Throwing it away meant risking a fatal disturbance of the body's electrolyte balance. No child can survive this indefinitely, Dr Wood warned. The doctor's words angered Sandy and Tim, but somewhere between the pumping and the head tapping and the waiting, they had begun to wonder just what it was they were hanging on to. One December morning, Leah gave them the beginning of an answer. Let me get some coffee going, Sandy called to June and Tim from the motel room's kitchenette. In the other room, Tim picked up Leah and sank into a chair, adjusting her head in the crook of his arm. She cooed softly. Suddenly, on the other side of the wall, the kettle hit the floor with a bang. Leah startled at the noise. Tim and June stared, and then they shouted, Sandy, come here! Sandy rushed around the corner. Leah heard that, Sandy. Tim was shaking with excitement. Are you sure, Sandy asked. She definitely heard that, said June. She tried to turn towards it. Later that morning, Sandy told Dr Wood what had happened. My daughter can hear. I am absolutely sure of it. The surgeon shook his head, thinking of all the couples whose brain-damaged children he'd treated in 20 years. To hold out hope without proof, he had learned, was to set up parents for a devastating fall. He pondered Leah's CAT scan. I simply don't see anything she could hear with, he answered finally. But Sandy and Tim were certain she could hear, so they talked to her. While they pumped her shunt, fed her, changed her nappies, they told her all about what they were doing. Always, Leah quieted to the sound of their voices and cooed and kicked. When they sang to her, they were certain that she smiled. I feel like she's fighting to get out, Sandy told Tim. Slowly, the fear that Leah would die slipped from their minds. It was impossible to pinpoint the exact moment when the future opened up. It might have been when the huge soft bulge on her head visibly compressed, signalling that her shunt had finally begun keeping up with the fluid production. But whatever the cause for hope, it happened. They were able to pump the shunt less frequently and the doctors stopped the terrible head taps. And they were seeing the feisty little person the doctors said could never exist. They saw that when they held up Leah's red teddy bear, she grabbed for it. As winter turned to spring, Leah grew more alive. And as she did, Sandy and Tim began to rebuild. Tim found work on a ranch 30 kilometres from Billings. Out in the April sunshine, 
Leah sat with Sandy in the shade of the caravan they now called home and watched him driving the tractor. Sandy took Leah's tiny hand and waved it at Tim. At night, when Tim came home, he lifted his sleeping daughter from her crib and sank into the rocker next to it. I've been planting seed all day, Leah. It's not easy. First, you have to turn the soil. Tim, Sandy would call sleepily. Let Leah get some sleep. You pick her up so much, you'll spoil her rotten. I know, Tim answered. That's what I'm trying to do. Leah listened and laughed and drifted to sleep in her father's arms. So softly did each night blend into the next, so gradually did days become weeks and weeks months, that Tim and Sandy barely realised that by the time Leah was nine months old, she had achieved the impossible. The counsellor who walked into Sandy and Tim's caravan on 4th of June 1986 had two words to describe the child nestled in Sandy's arms. Absolutely phenomenal, Vicky McDonough said. Sandy had half expected this visitor to recoil at Leah's scars and her huge misshapen head. She barely knew how to react to her enthusiasm. Vicky McDonough bent over and tickled Leah. Leah broke out in a huge two-tooth grin. Look at that smile, she laughed. Sandy was flooded with relief. They now had an ally. Even the name of Vicky's family support organisation, Special Training for Exceptional People was filled with promise. This baby wants to look at everything and we need to help her do that till she can hold her head up, Vicky concluded at the end of her first visit. The following week, she arrived with a specially made chair to support Leah's head, an activity centre, a mobile toy and information on infant stimulation. By June, Leah had begun to try to hold up her head. By the end of July, she was saying Mama and Dada. I've been trying to get an appointment with a superb paediatric neurologist I know named Dr. Mary Ann Guggenheim, Vicky told Sandy. I'm certain she can help Leah. Vicky was unable to get an appointment until September, but Sandy didn't mind waiting, now that each day brought something new to celebrate. Leah clapped and babbled and drank in sunlight so hungrily that Sandy and Tim forgot this was the child who was supposed to die. Then one night in August, Sandy awoke with an overpowering sense that something was terribly wrong. She pushed open Leah's door and flipped on the light. Leah lay rigid on her soaking wet mattress, her eyes rolled back in her head. Tim! Tim! Sandy screamed. Leah's dead! In an instant, Tim was bending over Leah, calling her name. He lifted her from the crib and gently placed her on the floor. Her whole body was blue. Suddenly, Leah twitched and gasped for air. We've got to get her to the hospital, Tim said. Within moments of their arrival, the emergency room doctor explained, this child is having a grand mal seizure. He summoned a colleague and two nurses to a treatment room. Sandy and Tim paced the hallway, terrified. Your daughter will be all right, the doctor reported, when he emerged from the treatment room. Had you not found her when you did, she might have died from respiratory arrest. Hydrocephalic children can have serious seizure disorders. When Tim and Sandy drove out of the hospital car park at 5am, they knew that they would never relax their vigil. Sandy was full of questions as she and Vicky McDonough strolled Leah into Dr Guggenheim's clinic on September 16, 1986. Leah was now one year and two weeks old. 
It had been months since she had been seen by a specialist. The waiting room door opened and Dr Guggenheim walked towards Sandy. Hello, Mrs Church, she greeted Sandy with a smile. Then the doctor knelt down. And this must be Leah. Leah took her bottle from her mouth. Hi, she said. Dr Guggenheim grabbed a plastic frog from a pile of toys and waved it in the air. When Leah grabbed it, Sandy shot Vicky a look of triumph. Sandy poured out every detail of Leah's early history, from the grim prognosis to the shunt pumping and head tapping, along with the first signs of Leah's mental development. We'll know a great deal more about Leah after we get the EEG and a new CAT scan, the neurologist told her. Later that same day, the doctor emerged from the examining room and closed the inner office door. She slipped several sheets of CAT scan film from an envelope and took a seat with Sandy and Vicky. What you're looking at, Mrs Church, is your daughter's brain, Dr Guggenheim said. Although smaller than normal, there it was. A grey and white brain, well-defined and dense with detail. How can this be, Sandy asked. Every doctor who's seen Leah has told me that she has no brain. Well, the brain is like a sponge, Dr Guggenheim explained. Leah's brain case contained such an enormous quantity of fluid that it probably made her brain so thin it was invisible. With shunting, her compressed brain tissue was able to expand and as that happened she began to grow and develop, to hear, see and speak. Sandy thought of the bleak months in the motel room, of the hours spent pumping out the brain fluid, all in the hope of relieving Leah's suffering. Never had they realised that brain expansion was possible. Leah clearly understands most of what's going on, Dr Guggenheim said. In her social and language development, I really think she's quite normal. Sandy sat stroking Leah's cheek and beaming at Vicky. There's still more water than I'd like to see, and her brain structure is not entirely normal, the neurologist continued. Get used to the idea of operations and I think it would be wise to continue her on seizure medication for at least the next year or two. That night, Tim and Sandy sat up celebrating the world that had opened for Leah. They revelled in thoughts of a future filled with books and music and Leah attending school. As they talked until dawn, they didn't know that they would soon embark on their most painful journey. Leah needs a new shunt, said Dr James Johnson, a neurosurgeon on Leah's team. Sandy felt the past coming back at her. It was as though the past 12 months had never existed. We knew this was coming, but now that it's here, I don't know whether I can face it, Sandy told Tim that evening. Why is it so much harder this time? Because now we know Leah, he answered. The blonde one-year-old who teased them with peekaboo games filled the house with her impishness. When Leah spotted Tim in the doorway at night, her face lit up and her arms opened wide. Hi, Daddy, she squealed. How would we bear it if we lost her now, Sandy asked herself. For weeks after the visit to Dr Johnson, Sandy and Tim didn't speak a word about the shunt. At last, Tim broke their silence. We really don't have a choice, Sandy. Leah is growing and the shunt isn't. It's something we have to do. It was Dr Johnson who finally brought an end to the waiting. We have watched Leah for some time now. We need to replace her shunt. Let's go ahead and schedule surgery. Then he began reciting the risks. Cerebral hemorrhage is the greatest risk. The smaller the patient, the greater the danger. 
Patients often experience some paralysis after shunt surgery. Usually it's temporary, but sometimes it's permanent. Tim and Sandy nodded. Patients sometimes suffer memory loss from the procedure, the neurosurgeon continued. When Leah comes out of surgery, she may not remember who you are. You may have to begin all over again. Sandy and Tim could barely breathe. We all hope the shunt will give Leah a new lease on life, Dr Johnson said gently. The odds are that it will, but I have to be honest, and the truth is that total memory loss is a possibility. There really isn't anything to talk about, Tim said. Sandy nodded. Sandy and Tim stood by Leah outside the surgical suite on the morning of January 8, 1987. When you wake up, Mummy and Daddy will be right here, they kept repeating to Leah. Bye, Mummy. Bye, Daddy, Leah said thickly, too drowsy with sedatives to fuss at having to leave them. What if when she comes out again and we say hi, she won't know enough to say hi back? What if she doesn't even know us, Sandy said. Tim stood looking down the long corridor. Even after the doors closed, he didn't move. Sandy had never seen such agony on his face. Tim, please come and sit with me, she begged. We've got three hours at least before we'll know anything. Tim collapsed on the waiting room sofa. Sandy was lost in thoughts of the past 16 months. Then came the sound of Dr Johnson's voice and Tim and Sandy bolted to the doorway. Down the hall came a gurney, several IV poles, an entourage of nurses, and in the middle of it all, Leah. They ran down the hallway. Leah! Leah, they called. Hi, Leah. Leah's eyes, barely visible beneath the head bandages, were closed. She's just coming out of anaesthetic, Dr Johnson told them. The surgery went well. But Sandy and Tim were not listening. They were calling Leah's name. Leah opened her eyes. She looked at Dr Johnson and the nurses, and then her eyes focused on Sandy and Tim. Leah's face lit up in exactly the way it always did when Sandy or Tim came towards her. And she lifted her hand and she waved, the wave of a little girl who knew who her parents were. Leah survived her three-year battle with seizures. By 1993, she was attending elementary school in Manhattan, Montana, where her family, which now included four-year-old son Cody and baby daughter Jamie, lived in a small house. Eight-year-old Leah still struggled with problems, including impaired vision, a cerebral palsy-like condition, and various developmental delays. But she was no longer in crisis, and her face was always alight with life. The previous year, Leah had given Sandy a hand-drawn Mother's Day card. Mummy, she wrote in extra big letters, I love your heart. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Thank you.